Okay, our topic, the biblical family is the basis of Christian civilization, and our topic today is going to be, this afternoon, the dominion mandate is going to be our topic, and I'll read the passage in just a second. We're looking at the family and its relation to theonomy, dominion, and so forth. Now, God created Adam and Eve in order for them to subdue the earth and exercise dominion. And they're to do it in a manner that glorifies God, Genesis 1, 26-30. Now, although Adam was created first and existed for a brief time by himself, the dominion mandate was given to both Adam and Eve in their married state, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, this is 1, 28, this is 1, 28, Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The old translations will say creeping thing. So man was created as God's representative to rule over creation in a manner that reflects the Lord's will and glorifies him. So you want to know, well, why do we exist? Why are we here? Did we evolve by chance to just have a good time and die like a dog? No. God made us. <clears throat> he is to exercise authority and power over the creation to develop it in God's name. Everything's for God. What's the chief end of man? To, enjoy, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Man was created for family life to populate the earth and to work six days a week to improve it over time and develop a worldwide godly civilization. All the accumulated labors of mankind over time, agriculture, music, art, science, engineering, architecture, technology, husbandry, economics, everything would reflect unfallen man's communion, communication, and love of God as well as a concern and respect for Yahweh's gift of creation. We must remember that before the fall, Adam was in daily communication with God. Therefore, he was to be receptively reconstructive in dominion, not autonomous. He walked and talked with God in the garden. He had communion. He had fellowship. He had communication. Now the word dominion, Hebrew, reda, can refer to, and I'm just using all the examples in scripture, to a king's rule over his subjects, Psalm 72, 8 and 110.2, a master's rule over a servant, Leviticus 25, 43 and 46 and 53, an employer's rule over his employees, 1 Kings 5.16, 9.23, or even a sheep herder's supervision over his flock, Ezekiel 34.4. Since the command is given to man before the fall in paradise, it is clear that this rule does not refer to exploitation, abuse, harsh treatment, or ruling in a manner that destroys the environment or causes problems for the animal creation. Okay, these people that have chickens for eggs and they keep the chickens in a little tiny cage and they just eat, poop, and lay eggs. That's all they do. They don't get to move around. They never see the sun. That's unbiblical. Yes, we can have eggs. And we can have meat after Noah. But they ought to have a nice life and be treated with respect. We are speaking of a peaceful, compassionate rule that benefits the whole created order. 
if man is to harvest gold and precious stones for industry or beauty, or oil and natural gas for energy, he must leave the environment at least as beautiful and healthy as it was before his act activities. Because okay, a lot of people, a lot of uh, left-wing lunatics, associate Christianity with exploitation and abuse of, of nature. It's not true. It's not true at all. Man was created as a gardener in order to beautify and improve upon what was already here. Now the expression exercise dominion calls to mind royal responsibilities. Man was created to rule over all, but as God's representative, he must be a loving servant leader. His task of naming the animals immediately prior to his marriage to Eve was a scientific task of classification. If he has to have dominion over the animals, he must first identify them and seek to understand them. <clears throat> Science, all these wonderful things are part of this dominion. Now the word subdue, Hebrew, kahosh, kabosh, is a strong word from the root to knead, like to knead bread, or to tread, to tread underfoot. It is used for the imp imposition of slavery, 2 Chronicles 28.10, Nehemiah 5.5, 5, Jeremiah 34.11 and 16, physical force or coercion, Esther 7.8, the military subjection of an enemy, Numbers 32, 30, uh, 22 and 29, Joshua 18.1, and the Messiah's subduing of his people's iniquities. And the exact same word is used, that's Micah 7.19. Since both of these interrelated commands are given before men are allowed to kill animals for food, this option only occurs after the flood, Genesis 9-2, or even for blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice did not come in until after the fall. This uh, religious right occurs after the fall because of sin, Genesis 4-4. That's the first time we read of it, although God kills animals to give a covering to Adam and Eve. One can think of training various animals to till the ground and carry loads for farming and building. Man has authority over the animal world, but prior to the fall, animals and men would have a friendly relationship, not one of fear. And when we discuss what happens after Noah, the restatement of the dominion mandate after Noah, you're going to see that fear very much has entered the picture. Animals are afraid of man. So men are not to mistreat animals or subject them to poor conditions. God's law says that one must not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Deuteronomy 24.4, 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. Jesus says that God cares about the sparrows. Matthew 10.29 and 31. Man has dominion over the animals to develop the earth. While at the same time he must care for the animals as God's precious creatures. Okay, so let's get this out of our mind that uh, the biblical worldview doesn't care about animals and we're here to exploit everything. That's absolutely not true. Now, the focus that the focus of dominion, at least in these early days, will be on focus uh, on farming and agriculture, is implied in Genesis one twenty nine and two nine, where herbs, plants that yield seeds and fruit trees are given to mankind for food. <clears throat> the beauty and incredible bounty of the plant world is a wonderful gift from the hand of God. We are to give thanks to God for the wonderful plants and delicious food he gives us. We are instructed to seek from God alone whatever is necessary for us. And in the very use of his gifts, we are to exercise ourselves in meditation on God's goodness and paternal care. We thank God for the food we eat. We thank God for the clothes we wear. We thank God for everything. For the words of God are to this effect. Behold, I have prepared food for you. 
before you were even formed. Acknowledge me, therefore, as your Father, who has so diligently provided for you when you were not yet even created. Remember, uh, man is not an accidental blip of chance that just happened to happen. God created everything for man's enjoyment and for man to have dominion over. I had a peach yesterday. It was incredibly delicious. <clears throat> the dominion mandate was given to Adam and Eve while they were without guilt or the pollution of sin. The image of God was not yet marred by sin, and they possessed true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10. Their reasoning capabilities and moral consciences were not depraved or perverted by sin. You'll see these people every once in a while and like, I saw this thing about this kid. He could hear some classical piece by Chopin and then just sit down at the piano and play it perfectly. Man's abilities before the fall were probably very heightened and great. They had an intrinsic desire to live in terms of God's preceptive will. They could see and analyze the world around them clearly and truly without the noetic effects of sin. Before the fall, they were in a constant communion with their Creator and could benefit daily from direct communications from God. If they had not fallen into sin, they would have cheerfully, gladly, and continuously obeyed God's will without any hesitation, resistance, or reluctance. Their thinking and emotions were not tainted with sin. Therefore, they did not have to fight against sinful lusts, impure thoughts, or rebellious reasonings as they contemplated their actions for dominion. They had a great advantage over us. We, we have to fight against sin as we're working for dominion. Now, the great tragedy of man's fall into sin was not only the loss of communion and direct communication with God, but also that man's dominion abilities were perverted and greatly diminished. True knowledge, righteousness, and holiness were lost and can only be restored by Jesus Christ, and that albeit in an imperfect form. Our knowledge is not perfect. <clears throat> Consequently, apart from saving grace through Christ, man's goal of dominion is no longer to glorify God and build his kingdom, but rather to exalt and glorify man. Who's the first big dictator we encounter in Scripture? Nimrod. Nimrod wants to build a tower to heaven. Nimrod wants to be God over everything. Man seeks autonomous power and glory. They pervert the truth and attempt to define for themselves what is good and evil. They, apart from Christ, seek not a comp compassionate, loving dominion for the good of all, but rather, according to their own sinfulness, seek unlawful, unlawful tyranny over, and power over others. <coughs> this desire for a one-world, socialist, monolithic government, it's part of man's sinful nature. They want to serve their own ungodly lusts. They still use the language of love, concern, compassion, and the public good, but because their worldview is based on human autonomy or Satanism, they lie and bring calamity and judgment on the earth. Number four, dominion and salvation. A common error among evangelicals, and even among some within the Reformed community, 
is the idea that once man fell into sin, the dominion or cultural mandate was completely abandoned by God. That's the official position of the Bible Presbyterian Church. That's the official position of dispensationalists. Men, we are told, are no longer responsible to disciple the whole world, every nation, people, or tribe, to be obedient to God and adopt a Christian law order. The job of the church is now basically one of evangelism of individuals. Believers are taught that we should not waste our time trying to change society's culture, civil governments, or law orders, for these areas belong to Satan and cannot be changed. And that's the, that's the position of the Protestant Reformed Church. It's even sinful to try. You're not going to change anything. Don't even try. Just worry about evangelism. This view, which is much more in common with Neoplatonism and Dispensationalism than Scripture, has led the church down the road of a form of, I call it, retreatist pietism. It should be rejected for the following reasons. Okay, so now we're going over, does the dominion mandate still apply to us? And the question and the answer is yes. Number one, it completely ignores the power of the gospel on Christians and its sanctifying effects. Now, when men are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and believe in Jesus Christ, they are justified. They receive eternal life. They are declared righteous in the heavenly court by God himself because, A, Jesus, by his bloody sacrificial death on the cross, took all the sin and guilt of his people upon himself, and thus the full penalty or liability of punishment is forever removed. You don't go to heaven because you're good. You go to heaven because Christ paid the price in full. And uh, you can look up later Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, Romans 3, 28, 4, 4 to 8, 5, 8 to 9, Philippians 3, 7 to 11. And I could have quoted a dozen more passages. B, the covenant of works or test placed by God on Adam was perfectly fulfilled by our Lord because he perfectly obeyed the moral law in exhaustive detail. Uh, Matthew 3.15, John 8.46, Romans 5.10, Hebrews 7.26, etc. The guilt and sin of the elect is imputed to Christ on the cross, and the perfect righteousness of the Savior is reckoned to the true believer's account. And we actually sang that psalm today. Psalm, psalm 32. I think it was 32 where Paul quotes that in Romans. Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute sin. You're not saved because you're intrinsically righteous. You're saved because the objective or alien righteousness of Christ, as Luther would put it, the alien righteousness. Christ is righteous. You're not. Salvation is achieved by Jesus alone and comes by grace alone. Consequently, it is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that all genuine Christians have a new and better title to planet Earth and its resources than Adam and, Adam and innocency. Adam hadn't fulfilled the covenant of works. Adam, but in Christ, the covenant of works has been fulfilled. We own the title of planet Earth in Christ. Therefore, our Lord said, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He didn't say, Blessed are the meek, for someday they're going to go to heaven and the earth's going to remain a hellhole. He didn't say that. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23 Therefore let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours, 
and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Christ's kingdom is not limited to Canaan or to heaven above, for it covers the entire earth. Matthew 28, 18 and following, the Great Commission. Psalm 110, Psalm, Psalm 2. Jesus is heir, the secure possessor of the world, Romans 4, 13. We, are, we receive our inheritance from our King, Jesus. <clears throat> Galatians 3.29, Ephesians 1.20-23. What Jesus accomplished by the cross and empty tomb is definitive, for the war has been won. He's won the war. The war's over. Satan has been defeated. He... Salvation has been accomplished. But this victory must be applied to planet Earth over time. The leaven must progressively leaven the lump. Matthew 13.33, Luke 13.20-21. The mustard seed must grow into a great tree. Matthew 13.31-32. And this only occurs through gospel preaching, church planning, and the progressive sanctification, sanctification of Christians over time. When Jesus speaks about meekness, he is discussing the meekness and humility of faith and repentance. He's not saying, oh, well, there's some people that are really good. Those are the ones who are going to inherit. The no, it's the meekness of faith in Christ and repentance. The person who believes in Christ must acknowledge his sin and guilt. He must lay down the weapons of his warfare against God. False worldviews, human autonomy, sinful lifestyles, and place all of his faith and hope in Christ crucified. So the picture is not one of retreat and escape, but spiritual conquest and victory. We cannot understand the meaning of meekness in Scripture unless we realize that it is not the surrender of dominion, but rather the humble and godly use of dominion that it is referenced to. Okay, we're not Neoplatonists. The blessed meek are the tamed of God, tamed by the Holy Spirit as it applies Scripture to our hearts. Those harnessed to His law, word, and calling who shall inherit the earth. The blessed meek are those who submit to God's dominion, have therefore dominion over themselves, and are capable of exercising dominion over the earth. They therefore inherit the earth. Dominion continues after the fall, but through Christ. The Christian who is justified by Christ is also made holy and progressively sanctified over time. The retreatist pietist must assume, contrary to Scripture, that personal sanctification will not have any social, cultural, or institutional effects, which is a rather strange thing to believe. We don't live in a monastery off in the countryside. We don't live in a monastery up on top of a mountain. We live in society. But such thinking ignores two obvious biblical teachings. A. The Bible speaks to every area of life, either directly or by logical implication. A Christian who is sanctified will apply the word of God to himself, to his family, and his business or calling. It must affect how he thinks, works, votes, and conducts art, economics, science, etc. There is a very real sense in which one's culture and civil government are simply external expressions of one's religion or worldview. You say, well, why are democratic cities turning into hell holes? Were crimes everywhere. I saw a, a disgusting thing. It was a homeless man in the streets of San Francisco 
who had taken a bunch of drugs and had severe diarrhea, and he just pulled his pants down and squirted diarrhea all over the sidewalk. And he was just laying in there, stoned out of his mind with diarrhea everywhere. That's what Democrats do to cities. Their worldview, their religion of secular humanism is expressed externally by the culture they develop. And it's a culture of crime. It's a culture of racism. It's a culture of oppression, tyranny, hatred. They want hatred. They want division. Because that's how they maintain power. In our day, when the civil government has legalized all sorts of sexual perversions, decriminalized many forms of crime, has redefined the meaning of the family and cannot even define what a man or a woman is for ideological reasons. This point should be obvious to all Christians. This idea that, yeah, let's just keep Christianity within the walls of the church. Let's not try to affect society or culture at all. Let's not be like Bach, who developed such wonderful music that he's still imitated to this day. He's been dead for hundreds of years. Let's not imitate Bach. Let's not imitate the great art Christian artists. Atheistic naturalism produces one kind of culture, biblical Christianity, another. B. The retreatist pietistic position assumes that what occurs outside the church can remain neutral or will always be satanic, so one must not waste time on such things. But Jesus said one is either with him or against him, Matthew 12.30. You're either with me or against me. You're either on my side or Satan's side. There is no middle ground. In other words, neutrality is impossible. There are no neutral zones outside of Christ's authority. To accept intellectual, ethical, and religious neutrality is itself not neutral. It assumes that God's transcendent law, gospel of grace, and providential control does not apply universally. But Paul says that God commands all men everywhere to repent, and bow the knee to Christ as Lord and Savior. Acts 17.30. Paul doesn't say, you know, I'm a pluralist, and I really have a lot of respect. You guys have a pretty neat religion. By the way, you know, Christ is inviting you to be a Christian. If you want to, go ahead. If you don't, that's no big deal. No, God commands all men everywhere to repent, because Christ rose from the dead. And he's coming back, and he's going to judge you. Every one of you are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You better repent now while you're still alive. Therefore, it is clear that there is not and cannot be any intellectual, ethical, or epistemological common ground between Satan and Christ. There can't be. And don't try to have it. Whenever Christians do so, they just baptize secular humanism. Now, those who argue against the biblical teaching on working to develop an explicitly Christian civilization and culture do so based on the fallacy of black and white. That's, that's when you present an argument, it's either got to be A or B. And uh, if you reject one, you've got to accept the other. That's, you'll understand what I say in a minute. <clears throat> they argue that evangelism, church planning, and missions will suffer and be neglected if Christians focus on the Christianization of society. Well, there are two problems with such thinking. Number one, the beginning of cultural change in a Godward direction is evangelism, church planning, and missions. We're not arguing against evangelism. 
I've written books on salvation. I've written a book on the atonement. I've written several tracts. I've done tons of evangelism and passing out tracts and so forth. We're not against that at all. Christians must not neglect one thing for another, but do both. Real biblical change always starts with the gospel. Sanctification and covenant keeping cannot occur apart from regeneration and justification. Okay, this false view of theonomy. Uh, now, I know theonomy movement's disintegrated and it's a basket case now because of the federal vision and their corruption of worship. But the basic idea of theonomy, which all the Puritans originally held, is law should reflect the Bible. We get our ethics from God. We don't get our ethics autonomously. Faith in Christ as he is revealed in Scripture is the foundation of all social change. Number two, the Great Commission, which we'll, Lord willing, get to next week, requires discipling whole nations by teaching the whole counsel of God. Jesus said, teach them everything I've commanded you. The whole Bible. As we have noted, personal sanctification changes every aspect of a person's life. The Holy Spirit's application of the Word of God to the heart will result in godly Christian art, not secular humanistic filth, like a crucifix in a jar of urine, or pictures of Mary made out of dung. It'll produce noble Christian art that exalts God. It'll produce honest Christian business practices, not, not false advertising, dishonest sales techniques, and liars. It's so hard to get your car worked on these days because they're all a bunch of crooks. They want to fix things that don't need to be fixed. Same with air conditioning. The Bible teaches capitalism under free market economics, under biblical law. Honesty. Honest scales. Honesty in salesmanship. Biblical agriculture. Not destroying and poisoning the earth or treating animals harshly. The Soviet Union, all communist countries, Cuba... China, they've completely tried to exploit the land and destroyed it because they don't seek to glorify God. And of course, Christian economics. No fiat currency, just printing paper money because you're the government, which is a form of theft. It's a way of paying off the debt and then the inflation comes out of your pocket. It's a hidden tax. And of course, socialism, which is based on theft as well and coercion. And of course, just civil laws. Not the legalization of homosexuality and gross sexual perversions and crime. You say, well, why is San Francisco so crazy? There's all this crime and you, there's all these films of people just going in stores and just with garbage bags ripping off this and ripping off that because they legalized it. They legalized theft because their presupposition is, well, you're poor because you've been exploited by the white man and therefore you should be allowed to steal from the white man. Successful evangelism leads to sanctification, not baptized secular humanism. The point of evangelism is so people will believe in Christ and then study the word of God to show themselves approved, to learn the whole counsel of God. So you can be a better husband, a better wife, a better son or a better daughter, a better business leader, a better musician. 20th century fundamentalists do not wish to be bothered with the hard discipline of providing guidelines in every area of life. Distinctly, explicitly Christian guidelines. So they have constructed a theology of zero or little social responsibility. 
in order to justify their own laziness and their own incompetence and their own antinomianism. It's sad, but true. I tell you, I have friends, my, one of my best friends became a professing Christian when I did. I became a street preacher and then I became a Calvinist and started really studying theology. He stayed in that same old Arminian Baptist church and uh, he's been going there for 40 years. Well, he's been, yeah, at least 40 years. He's a baby Christian at best. He's a baby Christian. He doesn't know any doctrine, doesn't know anything. And one must also consider the fact that the Dominion Mandate is reconfirmed in Genesis 9, with some differences due to the fall. This is verses 1 to 3. So God blessed Noah and his son. They've just gotten off the ark. They've just offered sacrifice. Now God speaks to them. So God blessed Noah and his sons. <clears throat> Hang on. Uh, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all, all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. I've got bird food out, out in my yard for the cardinals and the crows and everything. And then I've got a bird feeder for the hummingbirds. And they eat there every day. They come and get food every day. And no matter how long they've been doing it, if I walk outside and they see me, they fly away immediately. They fear me even though I've been providing them food and water every day. Let me continue. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Only Noah and his family remain after the flood, and Noah's like, really like a second Adam. That's all that's left is Noah and his family. Everybody else is gone. God begins by blessing Adam and his family, just like he blessed Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28. Adam was blessed with a beautiful creation, while Noah was blessed with salvation and the whole earth before him. But a fallen earth. The earth was now fallen, had death, harsh conditions, and violence among the animals. The earth is no longer a paradise, but it was now a difficult wilderness, making work in the fulfillment of the dominion mandate much more difficult. See Genesis 3.17, where God cursed the ground. And me and my wife, we, especially my wife, she does a lot of gardening. We have a huge garden. And finding the weeds and the bugs it's out here it's, in Texas, it's, it's, it's just unbelievably hard. Especially if you want to be organic. It's very hard. <clears throat> this will lead to diff differences between this mandate and the one given to Adam. Adam and Eve were vegetarians. For before the fall, death was not a part of the created order. Death didn't exist yet. This new situation will cause the animals to live in fear of man, whereas before they lived in complete harmony. The dominion mandate is restated to a family saved by the grace of God. Moreover, it is given to Noah immediately after Noah offered a burnt offering that is a sacrifice of atonement pointing to the Messiah, the Lamb of God, to come. Then as God's anger against Noah and his family's sin is propitiated, the Lord speaks to himself and promises never again to destroy the whole earth because of man's sin. That's Genesis 8, 21 to 22. It says that he speaks to himself. He's not speaking to Adam here. There's a part where he speaks to himself. 
it is a present presentation of Christ crucified to come that guarantees that God will not destroy the earth as, as he had just done. He had just destroyed the whole earth by water. Now he's promising not to destroy the earth. Why? Because of the Christ to come. That's why. Not because men are good. In fact, he points out that men, the thoughts of men are only evil continually. It's because of the sacrifice of Christ that he preserves the world. There are some implications of this section of Scripture that are noteworthy. Number one, the whole natural order suffers and is corrupted because of man's sin. Number two, man continues to have authority over the lower creation, but sin has brought disharmony and difficulties that did not exist before the fall. Man still has covenantal authority over the animal world, but his ability to have dominion in a godly, peaceful manner is greatly hindered by post-fall conditions. You know, Adam and Eve could probably just go to a bull or a cow and say, hey, come over here. <laughs> now you've got you to get things in line. Number three. The key to historical continuity among mankind and the earth and the ability to continue the task of godly dominion is the coming sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin and guilt. How do we know for sure that a comet's not going to destroy the earth next week? How do we know that World War III is not going to kill every human being in the whole world? How do we know that? God has promised. He's not going to destroy the earth. He smelled that sweet aroma. He saw the propitiation to come through Christ. And for that reason, the earth will continue. Before the fall, man could simply apply their intellectual and scientific skills to creation as they communed with God. After the fall, faith in the word and the blood of the Messiah to come was necessary to commune with God, receive divine revelation, and develop a society that honors God. Christ is central. He's the key. He's the foundation of everything that we do. Noah and his family is commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because God's plan for a worldwide godly civilization has not been abrogated. But because of sin, it can now only be achieved through the cross and the empty tomb of Christ. Although it is presented in typological form, the dominion mandate is connected to Jesus Christ after the fall. God is not interested in preserving the world for the advancement of idolatry and heathenism so he can destroy it again. He will preserve the world to save it through Jesus Christ. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. So remember that next time you read the, the end of Genesis 8, chapter 8, and the beginning of chapter 9, well, the first half of chapter 9. And then we'll stop there. And we'll, th this will take us to the Great Commission, which is really a salvific continuation of the dominion mandate. Everything I just said is going to be made explicit by the Great Commission. God didn't create mankind just so he could send billions of people to hell. He created mankind and he, he recreates mankind in Christ because he's going to save the world through Christ. Now, I'm not teaching universalism at all. But I'm saying that people of every nation will come to Christ. There'll be millions of people who become Christians and follow Christ. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the meek shall inherit the earth. Christians will inherit the whole world. The humanists, the sodomites, the lesbians, the transgendered, the perverts, the liars, the Democrats. They'll all be burning in hell where they belong. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. It gives us hope. 
We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose for our justification. <coughs> it is because of him that we are justified. It is because of him that we are progressively sanctified. It strengthen our faith in him, strengthen our obedience to your holy word through him, that we could work to win back America from the Satanists, from those who want to have a complete monolithic state that controls every area of our lives and suppresses and persecutes Christians. Thank you for that. We know that you will help us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>